Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Isaac, and good morning, everyone. My name is Dave Hahn. Um, welcome to Disciples Church. If we haven't already said that this morning, and if we have, we still welcome you to Disciples Church. We are really grateful that you have joined us. It's good to be together. Uh, it really is, uh, every time I stand up here, uh, every time I get to prepare, it really is my true privilege to be able to open God's word with you this morning. We are continuing in our series in a book of Ruth. So this is the second week uh, as we've gotten into it. So as I was preparing the message for this week, my mind went back to the years 1996 and 1997, and I'll tell you why. They were, that period of time, was what I would call the hardest period of my life to date. 1996 started out great. I was in two bands with some of my best friends. I had a new girlfriend. I was living in an apartment without a roommate for the first time in my life. I was able to make payments on a used truck that I had. And looking back on it, I'm not so sure why I'm so excited about that part of my life, but that's what 26-year-old Dave wanted. It was a simpler time. I was pursuing my dreams for my life. I really enjoyed playing music, really loved hanging out with my, with my buddies, and I, and I loved being able to live on my own. But then things started to change. My friends grew more interested in getting high than hanging out and playing music. My girlfriend seemingly had no time for me and wasn't returning phone calls anymore. 
the job that I had was ending, and I had torn the ACL in my right knee requiring surgery. And all of a sudden, the people and the things that made my life so awesome, awesome, were coming to an end, and they were failing me. But it was in the spring of 1997 that God intervened in a unique and a special way in my life. During a time where I felt as far away from God as I ever had, and though I would have said I had believed in him, very little in my life reflected a desire to know and love and follow him. Like the Israelites in the book of Judges, as we talked about last week, I was doing what was right in my own eyes. My life was mine to live. And then late one night, I found myself lying on the couch with my phone beside me, waiting for someone to call, anyone. If I were a crier, I would have cried. And then suddenly, as I laid there, it hit me. This is pathetic. Why are you so dependent on people and things that ultimately let you down, I thought. You've put your trust in people and things that cannot bear it. Only God can bear this weight, so turn to him. And so my journey to a relationship with Jesus Christ began. Now understand, things didn't suddenly become puppy dogs and unicorns for me, but a weight came off of me that I haven't felt since. My allegiances, trust, and hopes began to lessen in the people and the things that, I ha that had not and would not satisfy. Unfortunately, it took the lowest point of my life for me to begin putting my hope, my full hope and trust in God. Unfortunately, it took the lowest point of my life for me to leave the wilderness that I was living in and return to the land that God had intended for me. Last week, we looked at a similar journey in the book of Ruth. It's easy, I think, for us to relate to the story of Ruth and Naomi because it's a story, really, in part, of disobedience. A story of people who believe that God wasn't holding up his end of the bargain and decided to go off on their own to make things happen. A story of people who questioned God's character, his goodness, and his provision, who doubted his methods and his timing. So in chapter one of Ruth, a famine strikes Bethlehem. Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons choose to leave their homeland for a land that God had forbidden them to go. And while in Moab, the two sons married Moabite women, another forbiddance. And within 10 years, both Elimelech and their two sons had died. Suddenly, the wife of Elimelech, Naomi, found herself in a strange land with her only daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, as family. Upon learning that once again there was food in Bethlehem, Naomi set to journey back home, and she begged her daughters-in-law to remain in Moab as she had nothing to give them. Orpah agreed and kissed Naomi goodbye, 
But Ruth clung to her and said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And so Naomi returned home to Bethlehem with Ruth. And upon her return, as people began calling her name, she demanded a name change. Naomi is a name that means pleasantness, but she wanted to be called Mara, which means bitter. Because she said, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Can you relate to how Naomi was feeling? My life is in upheaval. God is angry. There is simply nothing pleasant about my life, and my name no longer fits. Names are interesting things, aren't they? Every parent thinks hard about what name they will give a child. Baby name books are bought and websites are scoured. Lists are shared and often fought over. Sometimes a child's name is in honor of a parent, a grandparent, or a loved one. Sometimes it is through associations, both good and bad, that a name is chosen or not. For instance, if one parent wants to name a child Jack, and the other parent knew a Jack who was a jerk, that kid very likely is not going to be named Jack. No offense to any Jacks in the room, I don't think we have any. Jonathan and Jessica, as a for instance, gave names of theologians as middle names to their boys. We have Leo Stott after John Stott and Harvey Owen after John Owen. Now they're going to have a girl early next year, so I can't wait to see what name she gets. Are there any cute feminine names amongst the growing list of long dead theologians? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're open for suggestions. In the Greek Orthodox tradition, which is my tradition, it's common to name the firstborn son after the mother's father. I was the firstborn son, and my grandfather's name was George. But my mom said, I'm not naming him George. George isn't a baby's name. To which my grandmother said, do you think your father was an adult his whole life? <laughs> so obviously, I'm not George. My name's David Christopher. Han. David means beloved. The name Christopher means heart of Christ. And the name Han in German means rooster. <laughs> so I never knew why my grandma had rooster knickknacks all over her house until I understood what my last name meant. And then it began to make sense to me. But what about my first name, David? I wish that the story of my life is that I had always felt beloved. But if I'm honest, there have been times in my life where I haven't felt very loved. And Christopher, I would love to say that my heart has always been of and for Christ. But I'm keenly aware of how fickle and wicked my heart can be. So in our time and culture, names do not carry the same weight they have and still do in other times and cultures for the most part. There are times and places where a person's name and their identity is inextricably linked. 
I would venture to say that there is no one in this room who has considered having their first name changed because of some major event in their lives. But that's exactly what Naomi did. And all throughout the Bible, we see examples of names being changed to signify an identity shift. Whether that identity shift was God-given or self-ordained, Abraham became Abraham, Sarai became Sarah, Jacob became Israel, Simon became Peter, Saul became Paul, and Naomi became Mara. And the list goes on. So as we leave chapter 1 and head into chapter 2 of Ruth, we see a woman whose life and identity is in chaos. And her new name is a reflection of it. We see a woman who is unable to see the goodness and the grace and the provision of God. But things are about to change. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, we read, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So as Jonathan mentioned last week, the book of Ruth was set in a time when women were dependent upon men and the kindness of others to provide for them food and shelter. As widows, Naomi and Ruth needed to rely on family or the grace of others to survive. That was the place they found themselves. See, in the book of Leviticus, farmers were commanded to not harvest their crops completely so that the poor and the needy could come and glean the corners or the edges of the field and from that which the workers of the field had dropped. According to verse 1, unbeknownst to her, Naomi had a relative upon whom she and Ruth could depend and find favor of. His name was Boaz, a relative of Elimelech's, but technically he was more than just a relative. In other translations, the word relative is written as kinsman or goel or redeemer. See, a goel or a kinsman was a special family representative. He was charged with, among other things, buying a fellow Israelite out of slavery or buying back forfeited family land, establishing justice for crimes committed against the family, and helping to preserve and carry on the family name. So apart from being a relative and a kinsman, In verse 1 of the King James translation, Boaz is called a mighty man of wealth. What a cool title. The ESV, as many of you have in front of you, translates this Hebrew word as a worthy man. Eh. Seems like a mistranslation opportunity there. Mighty man of wealth, I think, sounds way better. (laughs) Either way, during a time of great famine for Bethlehem, Boaz accrued great wealth and might. He was a man of integrity, influence, and of means. While Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons left Bethlehem for Moab, Boaz stayed and trusted God to provide. You see, no one in Bethlehem that we are told died of hunger. No one had 
to leave. But it's tough to stay put when things get difficult, isn't it? It's hard to trust when you can't see what's coming or when it's coming. Too often we tend to believe that if something's hard or doesn't make us happy or doesn't line up with the plans that we have for our lives or that things are not happening fast enough, it must not be of God. Or God has just outright abandoned us and that we need to handle this stuff on our own. We elevate our happiness over our holiness. We choose self-reliance over God-dependence. But does that give God glory and honor? Is that ultimately what is best for us? Because that's not how Ruth handled the difficult circumstances in her life. Rather than turn inward or run from God, she leaned in to God. She trusted in God and connected deeply with his people, throwing herself at their grace and their mercy. And according to verses 2 and 3, she set out to glean amongst the poor and the needy, where she happened upon the field of Boaz. She happened upon that field. Do you hear the tongue in the cheek? Do you hear the wink and the nod in that phrase? The author of this narrative knows the whole story and he sees God's hand in all of it. Even if Ruth and Naomi at this point do not. At least not yet. Friends, as those under the love and the care of a sovereign God, there is no such thing as luck or karma or fortune. There's no such thing as coincidence or happenstance, there is only grace. There is only providence. God guides and leads and cares for we, his people, even if we are unaware of it. And nothing happens apart from God allowing it. Even our accidents are within his care. This is why scripture calls us to remember and to consider and to ponder the faithfulness of God. It's hard to see the hand of God in the moment. In our times of need, we can doubt that he's going to pull through and provide for us yet again. And it is only through looking back at our lives that we see God's God's hand leading and guiding and providing So whether you know and love God or not, ask yourself this question. When have I not been provided for? When has God let me down? When have I been in great need, not want? Who or what have I happened upon that were potentially clever disguises for God's provision? While God's provision may not have come as we wanted it or when we wanted it, hasn't it eventually come? When we found ourselves in a furnace, 
Hasn't he been with us in it? Would you be silent before God this week with those questions on your heart? See, two days after I tore my ACL in the dark days of 1997, I happened upon a new job where I met a super sweet, funny, beautiful woman who would eventually become my wife. She always returns my calls. Later that year, as Sheila and I were looking for a church to attend that met on Saturday evenings and taught from the Bible, I happened to work with a woman who went to a church like that, and Sheila and I started attending. And as the bands I was a part of were ending, an announcement happened to be made at the church that we were now attending that they were looking for drummers. I could go on, but here's the point. The haps of my life and the haps of your life are not random and they're not accidental. They are part of God's design, even if we don't understand it. It's easy to say, right? But it is only as we reflect back on those circumstances that we are able to see the hand of God, so reflect. You see, no matter the circumstance, God calls on us to trust in him, to wait on him, and to believe that he will provide what we need, knowing that his ways are not our ways, that he does not slumber, and he is not unaware of our afflictions. Please understand, though, God's provision and sovereignty doesn't make us pawns in a celestial chess game where our lives have no meaning and our decisions are of no importance. Rather, it leaves us with the paradox that God is sovereign and our choices and responsibilities matter. Where God uses the outworking of our faith for his good pleasure. Continuing in verse 4, we read, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came. And she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So in verse 4, we get a picture of the heart of Boaz and his character. He is a man of God. In spite of what we read in the book of Judges regarding this time period where everyone did what is right in their own eyes, he knew God. He loved God and he loved his people. So be encouraged No matter how indifferent or opposed to God a people may become, God always leaves a remnant. And Boaz was such a man at this time. God's love and grace flowed in and through Boaz's everyday life, even in the relationships that he had with his employees. You want to talk about the sacred and the secular being united. I worked at a church and I was never greeted that way. Boaz loved his servants. And they loved him. I think there's an opportunity in this verse too for some self-examination and application. 
Ask yourself, as I did this week, am I a Boaz where I go to school and where I live and where I work and where I play? Does the love and the grace of God flow through me and unto others in my everyday life? And how is my being with God a blessing to others? Continuing in verse five, we see Boaz inquire of his supervisor as to who Ruth was. In these verses, we learn a lot about Ruth and her character in the supervi- via the supervisor's report to Boaz. Apart from learning that she is from Moab and living with Naomi, which we knew, we learn that Ruth is humble. She asked for permission to glean. Though technically, as we talked about in the book of Leviticus, it was her right to gather. You see, both Ruth and Boaz had rights. She is a gleaner, a poor, needy woman who needed to glean, and Boaz as landowner. But neither of them stood on their rights. Instead, they stood dependent upon God's love and upon his grace. And we also learn that Ruth is a really hard worker. She has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest, is what the supervisor said of her. See, for the believer, hard work is not only a reflection on our own character, but on the person of God. For we who claim the name of God, the world is watching everything we do and say. We are the Bibles that they read. So let what they see in us bring praise and honor to God who is worthy of it, even in our work. And in this particular case, it was Boaz and his supervisor who were watching, and they took notice of Ruth. And so Boaz initiated his pursuit of her. And in verse eight we read, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Boaz called Ruth daughter. And in so doing, it was his way of saying that he was going to treat her as family. Many, tra- many commentators believe that it also may have been that he was that much older than her. But either way, it was a term of endearment, a term of his provision. And so Boaz commanded her to glean in his fields, but in his fields alone, because in his fields, he knew that Ruth would find what she most needed, companionship among the young women gleaning alongside them, protection so that the young man and no one else would touch nor harm her, and refreshment that she would be able to get a drink as she had need. And it is in the kindness of Boaz where, Boaz that shows Ruth where we see the heart of God. See, Boaz had nothing to gain from being kind to her. And that is really the mark of true kindness, isn't it? Extending oneself without thought as to our own personal gain. And so it is with God and his kindness to us. God does not shower us with kindness or love or grace because we are lovely or because we are worthy of it. Rather, God loves us because he loves us. 
Deuteronomy 7 is growing to be one of my favorite pieces of scripture. And it reads, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. Not only did you not have anything to bring to the table, you had the least to bring to the table. So as we read on in verses 10 through 12, we discover that Boaz knew far more of Ruth's story than even she understood, leading her to ask, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? What a great and appropriate question to ask. Is it just me or is her lack of entitlement and not feeling owed something a breath of fresh air? To our shame, I think, our culture is wrought with entitlement even in the church, and even among people of faith. Where do we move beyond the grace of God in our lives and begin thinking it's by merit? Friends, entitlement and pride is sinful and needs to be repented of. What I'm about to say is a hard truth, but it so shines a light on the love and the grace of God that I think it's worth saying. Here it is. Death and eternal separation from God is what we deserve. And it is the only thing that we are entitled to. Death and separation from God, that's what we get. All else is grace. All else is grace. The undeserved favor of God. Just like we see here in chapter 2. God and Boaz owed Ruth nothing. Ruth saw herself as a foreigner and as the least among those who were gathering. But Boaz didn't see her that way. He didn't treat her that way. And more importantly, God didn't see her or treat her that way. As one commentator put it, to be a member of the covenant people of God is a matter of response in faith to his universal promise of grace and not a matter of gender, age, race, color, or ethnic background. And through Boaz, God showered Ruth and Naomi with his grace and providence, caring for them as his precious daughters. Continuing in verse 11, Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Before he had met her, Boaz already knew Ruth that she had found faith in the God of Israel and in response left her homeland, her family, her friends, and her religion, not knowing what her future held. Ruth had demonstrated that her newfound faith was found in loving God and loving Naomi. And Boaz took notice. So in verse 12, we hear him respond and pray for Ruth. It reads, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings 
you have come to take refuge. We should not hear the words repay or reward as though a wage was owed to Ruth for something that she had done. No. Rather, we ought to see a picture of our God of grace taking under his wing one who came to him humbly and by faith. Not as one who was self-justified or who felt deserved or entitled of it. And what of her reward? What is this reward that Boaz speaks of? Boaz is praying that Ruth would find deep relationship with the God under whose wings she has come to take refuge because here's the reality. The reward that God gives, the greatest reward that God gives is himself. He is what we get. God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 15 and said, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. And as one commentator said, the enjoyment of the rewards of good character from which the fruit of good actions derive is the same as the enjoyment of God himself. An enriched relationship with God is the proper reward of loving obedience to him in response to his gracious initiative of love. And it is under the wings of our very great reward that Ruth had come to take refuge. Safety, refreshment, stillness, help, and hope in God under his wings. It is the heart of God, my friends, that all people, all people would find refuge and redemption in him. We hear it all throughout scripture, that call, including in Jesus' plea to Israel. To those that God first established a covenant with but had grown to have no need of God and were creeping out from underneath his wings of refuge. Demonstrated in their self-justification and in their self-righteousness. Oh, let it not be said of us. In Matthew 23, 37, we read Jesus say, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, what God began in Israel has global and historic implications for you and I. God seeks to draw near all those who see themselves as far off as unworthy, as disillusioned. In this story, it's Naomi and Ruth. Today, it's people like you and me. Because the reality is, Elimelech and Naomi should have known better. You don't leave the promised land or climb out from underneath wings of refuge for a godless wilderness but are we any different? Before we get too hard on Naomi and Elimelech, are we any different? For 26 years, I should have known better. I knew of him, but I lived for myself, by and large, and I ignored God. 
Perhaps many of you share that same story. Spending our lives looking for God in everything and everyone else, believing that he can't ultimately be trusted, he won't provide, and he's just not enough. Maybe that's where you are right now. Struggling with those thoughts and ideas. Struggling to trust him and find his grace to be sufficient. But it was in my darkest and most disobedient days that God drew near and was pleased to reveal his son to me. I hadn't turned about face and started walking back. He came and got me right where I was. And the same is true of you. I was on a path that was both of my own making and of God's grand design. It didn't take him by surprise. God often ordains and allows difficulty, small and big, because it is the only thing that will get our attention and draw us nearer to him. And near God, my friends, is the best place to be. So today, in your hearing, God is revealing his son to us once again. The book of Ruth is like a signpost of God's grace along our crooked path to glory. If we have forgotten his grace, the book of Ruth is there to remind us. To let you and I know that we haven't gone too far. We haven't sinned too much. We haven't disobeyed one too many times or done anything that would cause his love to falter. Be encouraged We simply need to come to him humbly by faith and take refuge in him. And the book of Ruth, like all of scripture, points us to Jesus. Thank God. And it is in Jesus that we are no longer foreigners. Without a people or without a place to call home, it is by his grace that we are fellow citizens and ambassadors of an eternal kingdom. In Jesus, we are no longer poor and needy, gleaning from the corners and picking up scraps. By his grace, we are sons and daughters and benefactors of all that our Father has made. In Jesus, we are more than widows or servants seeking provision and favor. We are the very bride of Christ, and it is our union with him that we find all that we need. In him we find comfort and kindness in our heartaches and refuge in the storms. See, we are all born sinners. But in being born again, we become saints. We were foreigners. We were poor and needy. We were lowly servants but we are those things no more. By God's grace and by his choosing, we have a new name and a new identity. A new identity in Christ. And he is our God, our king, our kinsman, and our redeemer. This is the story that we find ourselves in. So let's remember and rejoice. Let's pray.
our great and gracious Redeemer. We give you praise and thanks for how you have provided for us and given us refuge. While we were your enemies and far off from you, you loved and pursued us. Even if we consider ourselves to still be your enemies, you pursue us. And even now in our sin and rebellion, you are kind and gracious and our identity has not changed. Rescue and provision by your hand is sure and your kindness is steadfast. What is before us we do not know, whether we live or die, but this we know, that all things are ordered and sure. Everything is ordered with unerring wisdom and unbounded love by you, our God, who is love. Grant us in all things to see your hand through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it is his most precious name that we pray. Amen.